GM there, listener, and welcome to the 12th episode of the Metacost Crypto Corners brought to you by Navic. I'm your host, Nicolas Vereke, or Nico for short, and today I'm joined by Chris Clay and Devin Emzo Becker. In this episode, we're taking a deep dive into the current generation of blockchain-based trading card games. I've always been a fan of these types of games, and so now, uh, yeah, we're taking a look at them, and uh, we have some great people for that on board. First up, Chris Clay, who's joining us from Australia, and also um, is, it's 5 a.m. For <laughs> from his side, so he's joining us with his little cup of coffee. Um, Chris, welcome, um, and, and super happy to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, Quite happy to be here today, and let's uh, yeah get in some good stuff. Exactly. Could you uh, share a bit more about like you, what you're doing, what you're up to, um, maybe a bit of your backgrounds, and um, yeah. Yeah. So I've been in game development now for a little over twenty years, and uh, spent my career basically doing a little bit of everything. I've been a technical artist, art director, uh, mostly a game system designer, uh, blending. Yeah, everything together. I've spent a lot of time uh, in combat systems, but basically moment-to-moment gameplay uh, is one of my specialties, uh, combined with basically long-term progression. Uh, I spent my early career, first 15 years of my career, basically working on uh, massively multiplayer online role-playing games. Um, and, you know, some of those are still going today, like uh, Lord of the Rings Online. And, you know, to have a game that lasts, you know, 15-plus years, you've got to have some really sort of long-term views of where things are going. Um, and that is some of the perspective that I try to bring to the blockchain space. Uh, before uh, joining uh, Immutable and Gods Unchained, I was the game director for Magic the Gathering Arena. And my experience there is partly what led me into the, the blockchain space in that uh, being in meetings, basically talking about trapped value in accounts and you know, trying to, to uh, you know, basically optimize the spend we could get from individual players and how we could trap that value wore on me. And when I had the opportunity then to you know, basically start learning about the blockchain and you know, potentially to build a, a card game that would provide ownership over the cards to players, it was very appealing to me. And particularly because the, the space is just so unsolved. Uh, we don't know how best to use the blockchain today. You know, we're learning all of the time, and being able to explore new technology like that is one of the things that keeps me in games. You know, all these years later. Awesome, cool. And then next up, we have Devin or Emzo. Devin's joining us from uh, the sunny California. Devin, how's it going? Good, good. Um, I actually been you know playing and, and working with uh, collectible card games and stuff for a long time myself. Going back to like you know Magic first came out. Um, I, in fact, I actually just sold some of my old alpha cards the other day to a uh, to collector. We're in, we're in perfect mint condition because they were played, but uh, and you know worked on some uh, digital ones as well, like in the, um, the the Facebook and Flash game days, um, and and seen a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, mostly Hearthstone eating everyone's lunch for a while there as well, uh, but it's uh, it's been very interesting, and I think uh, this is really exciting uh, genre for blockchain space. Um, you know, for some of the reasons that Chris was talking about, and I think it's great as well that, that you mentioned that uh, why you transitioned over, Chris, too, because I know there's a lot of people who think that like everyone wanting to move into this space has just got dollar signs in their eyes, and there's so many people like yourself that are like, actually, it's the opposite of that. I'm, I'm tired of you know kind of the, some of the the greed mentality. I want to like really make this synergize with in the non-businessy sense, but with players instead. I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Great. 
As as I said, perfect people to be talking about this. So uh, so let's dive in. You mentioned Hearthstone, by the way. I remember Hearthstone was for me the perfect game to play during class. You could just you know sit there like pay half attention. You know just ping some minions and stuff. Those those great great times. Um, all right, let's um, yeah let's start. Um, what are the current big you know uh, blockchain based TCGs out there that that people might have heard heard from? And Devin, maybe you've done your research. You can you can give uh, this one a go. Let's see if there's anyone else I need to look up. <laughs> I went and double checked too, like before this, to make sure that there wasn't any weird ones that kind of slipped through the cracks. But for the most part, um, right now it's pretty much dominated by Gods Unchained and Splinterlands. Um, Splinterlands being like one of the top games at the moment, period, uh, on the blockchain. Uh, there are some other alternatives, uh, like kind of coming out. Uh, Metropolis Origins exists, but it's not really much of a blockchain based game. It will like sync your cards over and you've got collectible NFTs, but they're not, it's not really a blockchain based one. And then another one that's kind of sort of you know, blockchain related um, that's not using it as much as the other two games is uh, Skyweavers, which I think uh, it come, it will be uh, public release on February 8th. So that will be like, it's right now closed beta, really easy to get into, but they are switching over to being public uh, in, what is that, like less than two weeks. So that I, that's one I also recommend people check out just because like, uh, I think it's it's a really good game. This this space is uh, the nice thing is all three of those games uh, really are are do things differently, and so it's it's a great way to explore the space with the same base concept, but then very different ways of approaching. And I think is is really cool. Yeah, and I think some of the reason that you're you're seeing so many TCGs entering into the blockchain space is it's one of the things that mentally is easy for people to grasp. Um, if you do that direct analog to physical product, you know. People who have grown up in many cases trading, you know, in my case, Magic the Gathering Arena cards or baseball cards. You have other people with Pokemon. But this concept of, okay, so it's a digital thing that's kind of like a real card except digital. Okay, I guess I kind of, I, I, can, I can grasp that just a little bit easier sometimes than tokens and uh, just NFTs in general. This concept of a card, I think, is something that is easy for the psyche. Mm-hmm. Devin, you, you mentioned that different games take different approaches or, or more or less on chain. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Like how do some of these games approach, you know, the blockchain and, and where does what happen and, and how do they differ? Yeah, I mean, all, the nice is all of them are using different blockchains, all of them kind of putting different amounts on the blockchain. And, and Splinterlands, I think, is the one that diverged the most in terms of style of gameplay, right? So Gods Chain is a little more of a straightforward uh, TCG in terms of being a lot more along the Hearthstone uh, kind of design path, uh, whereas Splinterlands, for example, uh, tried to make everything on-chain and therefore designed a game that was more of a transactional, uh, what I would call a transactional gameplay, where you are submitting a transaction and getting a result. But in this case, uh, you, you are still using a collection of cards in Splinterlands, but you uh, build a team based off of certain constraints that are given to you per battle. Uh, you have a little bit of history on that you could, that's provided on your opponent, and you can use that to kind of like guess, but you have to blindly build a team uh, for the most part against what you think they might play based off those constraints and based off your collection, and then submit that, and you get the results back. Technically, you can just skip those and just go straight to, did I win or lose? But you can also watch like a, a replay of it based off of that. And they, they more or less had everything on the blockchain originally, uh, but they, as back, just as recently as August last year, they, they moved some stuff off for scalability. So as much as everyone wants to do everything on the blockchain, I think we're realizing, okay, well, let's let's figure out what stuff is important for trust, fair play, things like that. And so they, uh, they use the Hive blockchain. So they're one of the few games on there that was a uh, sort of fork from Steam, uh, as there was some issues with control of the, over that network. 
So they moved off to that. Um, they were originally actually Steam Monsters was originally before they they changed. And then Gods and Chain is, as I'm sure Chris is very familiar with, is uh, is using a, a zk rollup system. So it, they're actually uh, using a different way of putting the information on the blockchain through those rollups on the uh, immutable network, which is uh, on layer two uh, of Ethereum. So I think. Uh, I mean, Chris hopefully could speak to a little more uh, technical aspects of how the, the ZK rollup stuff works because it's, I think a lot of people might not be familiar with uh, that particular concept and how it actually plays out on servers versus on chain. Um, and then Skyweavers, lastly, uh, doesn't really do uh, the game on chain so much as it's using the chain for the trading aspect of the cards and minting and things like that. Yeah, Skyweaver and uh, us uh, on Gods and Chain use you know, sort of a similar approach where you know, the game is a game. Um, it's something that uh, you know could be built without blockchain. Uh, you could get in play with a completely you know, standard sort of free-to-play economy. And that was sort of very important to us too in that I wanted it to be an easy on-ramp for players. So you don't need any blockchain to get started. Uh, you can basically uh, get playing without you know, having to know anything about it and learn over time. In terms of you know, the technology, you know, one of the, the approaches that I was taking that I think is different than you see in a lot of blockchain games in general is I wasn't looking at having, you know, tens of thousands of NFTs or hundreds of thousands of NFTs. It was looking at millions of NFTs. So, you know, last I checked, we're approaching or we may have just passed, I'd have to go look at the analytics, about 17 million uh, Gods Unchained NFTs. 17 million NFTs on layer one would be very expensive just to create, let alone, you know, handle the trading. So you know, it became pretty evident, you know, even a long time ago, as you know, gas costs started going up. From it's like, hey, it's it's costing me about a buck to trade a card. Like that's when it, it started hitting us way, way, way before the you know hundred dollars a trade days. So we we did move to uh, Immutable X as a platform using zk rollups, and there is a whole bunch of math magic uh, there. You know, it it feels like magic at times, but essentially. Very, very complex math is used to sum hundreds of thousands of transactions into a single blockchain transaction. So Immutable X is still built on Ethereum. Everything is sort of backed by Ethereum, but we're doing this multiplicative effect so that you know within Immutable X, we can, for the cost of basically a single on-chain transaction, have you know, hundreds of thousands of transactions logged. And what this lets me do is, you know, mint those millions of NFTs and, you know, not have heartburn from it. And on the other side of it, for our players, it means that it's gas-free trading. So fees are coming to Mutable X, so it's not necessarily free forever, but we've been free now for you know, quite some time. Um, gosh, is it coming up on six months? And you know, we can do that because of that sort of multiplicative effect. And it actually solves a lot of the issues that you see sort of mainstream gamers having with NFTs, they're like, you're destroying the planet. I'm like, no, I'm really not. You know, and you know, I think our approach is different too in that we do have some elements of our game that I think you would see in sort of traditional NFT projects and that our diamond cards you know, can be quite valuable in the tens of thousands of dollars and the mythic cards are also very valuable. Uh, though I don't think one is sold in a while, so I don't know exactly where that value sits. But you know, over the course of the time we've been trading on Immutable X, we just passed you know thirty million in cards traded, and you know over the last uh, week it was something like two point five million uh, in trades, I believe. And you're seeing the average uh, trade being around six dollars. So, 
you know, people are trading on the utility of the cards rather than the sort of FOMO and scarcity. And that is one of the big things that we are aiming for, where you know, people can get in, they can build a deck, they can sell a deck to go buy another deck, but providing that sort of uh, liquidity in the marketplace for people to you know, experience the game fairly seamlessly and ultimately never have to open a pack of cards if they don't want to. You know, this is another big hot-button topic of cards without marketplaces and without ownership if you want something rare, your only uh, avenue to get that is just to go spend a ton of money and open up a ton of packs and hope on chance. One of the things I like about the sort of blockchain-based economy is you know, a user can choose not to. They can just go to the marketplace, buy from other users, and know exactly what they're going to spend. And you're having that control over, hey, do I want to go open some packs and see what I get, or do I want to go target something very specific? You're having that versatility just doesn't exist uh, in other places, at least not non-destructively, like in Hearthstone. Yeah, you can go get that exact deck, but if it's not the deck you want, you're going to have to go burn that deck down at you yeah. know not great odds uh, to go at the next one. It's fascinating. Uh, there's a bunch of th uh, stuff you touched on that I'd like to, to get into. One was Gauze Unchained, um, always a part of Immutable, or did it start as you know a game you wanted to build and then you decided to go build it on Immutable? What's the story there? Yeah, so Gods Unchained did start before I joined. Uh, it was back when we were Fuel Games. And you know, in the beginning, Gods Unchained was all that we were doing. Um, you know, they, they had had a small uh, project called Etherbots, which was sort of the foundational project. And that was, uh, you know, similar to some of the others, completely on-chain. I don't even want to think how expensive it would be to play through a game right now. But the primary project was Gods Unchained. And... Immutable sort of evolved out of that to now we do have the the platform team which is working on Immutable X and you know, it's serving Gods Unchained, you know, Guild of Guardians, a whole slew of other projects out there. Um, and we still have you know, basically Gods Unchained as the sort of studio side of it. You know, we don't want to get out of uh, building games. We're continuing to sort of grow our, our studio side quite a bit. We're hiring. Go check out our uh, careers page, you know, plug, plug. Um, so, you know, the, the company has evolved and it's evolved very rapidly just over the last, uh, couple of years. You know, when I joined in 2019, uh, we were, we were about, uh, 15, 20 people. Um, and it, just, uh, the God's Unchained team right now is around 50 internally and a whole bunch of people externally. Um, and yeah, the company as a whole is threatening 200 here in the next couple of months and, it's been a wild ride, that's for sure. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, I think for everyone in the crypto gaming space, the last few months were especially, you know, especially that those times were a very wild ride. Um, could you tell me a bit about the emission of new cards? So you described packs. Is that also the mechanism you're using uh, with Gods Unchained? One of the, the key parts of Gods Unchained that is quite important to me is our core set. So the core cards aren't, aren't on sale uh, like you can't buy them for money. You can buy uh, some of them in the Star Store, but that was all sort of player-earned currency. But essentially, the core cards are generated by players, and they they do not start off on chain. They start off at what we call you know plain, and they're basically all you know, in our database. What you can do is you can take two plain cards and uh, currency we call flux, which is earned through skillful play and some of our gods token, and then you can mint them onto. Uh, the blockchain. So we've got a bunch of core cards in the marketplace, but all of those are generated by players. 
Then we have sort of our premium sets. We've had uh, Genesis, Trial of the Gods, and Divine Order is on sale now. And the primary avenue for them is through purchasing of packs uh, or through competitive play. So we've been running a weekend ranked event for a very long time now. And yeah, we're giving out a fair amount of value in cards uh, each weekend. It's not nothing. And yeah, that's another sort of major source of the cards in the ecosystem. One of the things that has changed is both Genesis and Trial of the Gods were limited by uh, the total amount of spend. So Genesis was six million USD. Trials was four million uh, USD. Divine Order isn't gated. Uh, instead, what we did was we took an approach where uh, we had a diminishing discount. So you wanted to get in early to buy the cards. Yeah, twenty percent discount when it started. Uh, that discount is now expired, uh, but the set is still on sale. That won't be for forever. But one of the places that I've been targeting is getting into to mainstream gaming. And yeah, I know from my experience on MTGA, like the numbers between people who are playing blockchain, you know, even in the most successful blockchain games and mainstream, uh, you need a lot more cards in the ecosystem. And this first opportunity, I believe, was going to be during Divine Order's lifetime. So making this transition for me was important because I felt the surest way to drive mainstream gamers away was for them to come into the ecosystem. Like the sets are closed. There's this limited pool of them. You know, as people join in, prices are spiking. And I don't think that's how we get, you know, your everyday gamer coming in because it's going to feel like how blockchain feels to a lot of people. And like it doesn't make sort of sense. Um, you know, like the people are looking at these, you know, NFTs of apes that are worth, you know, a quarter of a million dollars. And they're just like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Whereas I think we've got a much better message to bring to mainstream gaming and like, look, it's a trading card. You can go buy this thing uh, in a lot of cases for under a buck uh, on the marketplace. It's about getting it and having that utility within the game. Don't even necessarily care that it is blockchain because that's not the most important part. The part that's important is that mm -hmm. it's yours and that you can do with it, uh, you know, what you want. If I if I understand you correctly, you've tried to replicate, you know, the physical trading card ecosystem as much as possible, and you're just using blockchain as a tool for that. Uh, but even better, so. You know, anybody who's been on the physical side, like trying to find cards is hard. Like mm -hmm. you go to, you know, one store and, you know, like my biggest mi mistake ever is looking at a Black Lotus for $60 and then a box of Fallen Empires and being like, clearly a box of cards will be more worth more than this single card. <laughs> single biggest financial mistake in the history of, you know, any uh, you know, card purchases. But, you know, each store has its own ecosystem. You know, one of the things that is a, a strength of Immutable X is no matter what marketplace you go to, be it our own or Token Trove, which is sort of built on Immutable X as an external marketplace, uh, all of the cards are there. So you've got this sort of shared uh, order book and making it easy to get the cards uh, and making it easy for others to build is also really important. Uh, I know a lot of people use Token Trove because they've got a lot of really cool integrated functionality being sort of card specific as their origin between, you know, their GU decks and, you know, card lists and being able to import cards and buy a deck all in one go. It's like, there's always more work to do in development than you can get done. And when you've got a system where somebody else can go build some of these tools and just make great experiences for your players, that's something I also couldn't really do in mainstream gaming. Like getting permission from like a Hasbro. Okay, okay, guys, let me sell you on this. We're going to make a system and we're going to take fees on it, but we're going to let other people you know, build marketplaces 
and maybe they'll be better and more people will use those. What do you think? It's like, never going to fly. One for the lawyers that they wouldn't allow you know, people to sort of change a centralized database. It's just not going to happen. But with blockchain, it's just really easy. And being able to do stuff like that, you know, it's why I get up at you know, 4.30 in the morning to have conversations like this. It's just cool. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, Devin, in, in what Chris laid out, is are there any significant differences you already see with other blockchain uh, TCGs out there? Yeah, I mean, Split Lands is the most obvious point of comparison for a lot of different reasons. You know, like I said, it's, it's got a little bit of a different design t- in terms of the way you play it, but also it's got a little bit more uh, market functionality in terms of what they built on top of it. Um, they have a lot of external marketplaces as well, as Chris was just talking about, um, but they also added a lot of functionality around uh, lending and renting cards, which has been pretty interesting because uh, one of their selling points is that uh, you could basically just rent cards. You don't necessarily have to buy them. You could just rent them. There's a whole lending system with timers and cooldowns. And when you lend out cards, you could pull them back. Uh, there's like cancellation fees for if someone, like the your, your card landlord sort of pulls cards back on you. And it's very interesting because it's developed like its own ecosystem around card movement uh, within the ecosystem rather than just card play. Uh, and they also have different uh, rarities of cards, different sets of cards that they've done. And some of those provide extra value to your earnings. So like playing with uh, a couple of the older sets like Alpha and Beta or playing with gold foil cards, which are like sort of the, the special ones, um, provides extra bonuses. So there's like this incentive to engage with sort of the, um, the higher end market of cards in terms of rarity to actually increase your earnings. So they have like a little bit of a more dynamic market going on, I think, that they've built up over time to, to really try and make it interesting and different. And, and that is the one, th- I'd say card renting is the one thing they, they do that, that actually improves upon physical product that you just can't do. I mean, as Chris mentioned, like, you know, finding physical product can be difficult. And I know like eBay has really taken that over and like stuff like that. And you still deal with shipping and people's conditions of the cards being accurate. And uh, I think the idea is like this kind of stuff, I think blockchain in the end is not just, you know, copying what TCGs are doing. It's improving on the physical product and it's improving on the digital products. It's actually taking these to the next level. So people will be like, what, what do you do with blockchain that you can't do with the digital game? These kinds of things, realistically, like Chris was saying, you can't just go to Hasbro or whatever and, and just set up your third-party marketplace. Uh, you know, it's, uh, for example, with Splinterlands, they're still setting it up. So uh, you can use, because everything's on-chain for the most part, you can use primarily your own custom-built client if you wanted. Um, obviously, they have to deal with bots in that respect even more more so potentially because, you know, custom clients. But that's the thing is that offering these freedoms, these enhanced uh, freedoms that you have, whereas the digital card games are going the opposite direction. So the biggest example that I can give is Pokemon TCG Online, which is one of the big ones that has like one of the the top three uh, TCGs that has uh, kind of gotten into digital for quite a while and even provides codes and packs and stuff, they are moving away from allowing you to trade cards with other players. Now, they didn't have a marketplace to buy and sell, and they were kind of odd in how they did their monetization that was primarily focused on selling physical products. But they are actually introducing a new client, which I think was supposed to be out this month, uh, but got delayed uh, due to COVID stuff for their, their sets and shipping delays. But they're, they're not allowing you to trade anymore, and they're just copying what Hearthstone and Magic did, which is uh, just dusting cards, okay? You know, just like like Chris said, burning your, your deck to try and get a new one. And so everyone's going for this sort of uh, destructive, like, trapping value, as Chris put it. Like, yeah, sure, you, you turn it to dust, but that's not dust you can take somewhere else. Like, that's still staying trapped within their wallet, essentially, um, in terms of what you could do with it. You can't take it elsewhere. Uh, and I think... 
as they move towards that, that's even more value proposition for Gods Unchained and Splinterlands to be like, do you really want to stay within that ecosystem? I mean, even when uh, when Legends of Runeterra uh, came out, that was from Riot, you know, they made a big deal about trying to be a more fair card game, being free to play, but not in a, in a manipulative way and stuff like that. They still are are still trapping you within that same sort of thing. Yeah, maybe, maybe you can't take your Gods Unchained cards to another game right now, but you can take them off of the game in terms of selling them. You can sell your collection. And I think that is a big thing that, that physical card games have had for a while that I think really helps people feel comfortable jumping into a new card game, collecting, and knowing that there's an exit strategy if it's not tenable for them anymore, if it's something that's a problem. In fact, I'm actually getting to the point where I play a couple physical TCGs at local tournaments. As much as I love hanging out with the guys physically, I'm ending up playing so many of the blockchain ones, I almost kind of want to dump my physical collection, which is something I could do with physical cards, and put it into more of the blockchain ones because I still get the same benefit, but I don't have to worry about uh, you know COVID mask requirements somewhere to go play and and going in and out and like dealing with shipping delays, uh, you know, with cards coming over from overseas, stuff like that. So there's there's so much benefit here that I think is coming in and so many different models that I think you have you just we're actually even with just two games right now I think we're spoiled for choice in having really strong, really solid, well built contenders. Uh, for blockchains, and and it's just it's just a natural fit for people mentally, and I think just market wise, it is something that is a tested market in terms of sec a secondary market that's actually acceptable in a game. Like you know, sometimes secondary markets for say like Diablo two or something like that. That's that's very gray area. Whereas the the gray market for card games has always been kind of part of it. And you even see like the original designers like Richard Garfield talking about the different aspects of trying to integrate that. And of course we could get into to Artifact if you want to and, and how that turned out for him when he tried to not blockchain do it. But uh, it's, it's such an exciting space, I think, um, just because of the possibilities that have already been shown. Yeah, I've definitely had Artifact brought up to me from some of my uh, former colleagues uh, and people who know me in this space of it's like, you know, the, the fact that uh, you could buy, sell, trade cards killed Artifact. And I'm like, I don't think that's what killed Artifact. I still clearly remember you know, being at Wizards working on MTGA and you know we were getting off the ground then and Artifact came out and uh, my boss at the time was like, uh, looked at it, saw how beautiful it was and he was like, they're going to eat our lunch. I played through you know, two or three games and I went over to him and I'm like, it's not going to be a problem. And he's like, you're wrong. And I'm like, no, I know games. This is not going to be a problem. And yeah, I guess I won that round. But you know, one, of the, one of the things you brought up in there was, uh, I think one of the other like, misunderstood uh, and actually I think misapplied uh, terms, which is that interoperability of, of assets in that, yeah, I, I often see people being like, well, yeah, you can take your God's Unchained cards and go play them in Splinterlands or, you know, more more apropos. You could take your League of Legends character and bring them into Fortnite. And yeah, I don't think we're going to see that level of interoperability uh, anytime soon. But there are ecosystems like that uh, that exist today in mainstream gaming. You know, I think Blizzard is a good example of that where you complete you know, something inside of Diablo 3 and that gives you a card back inside of Hearthstone and a skin uh, inside of Overwatch. And you've got this idea that doing something in one game gives you something in the other. Yet it's very you know, primitive formula. You can't trade it. But I think that's where you're, we're going to be going with a, a lot of this. And you know, even something that we're looking at you know, for Gods Unchained in that you know, we've got 
you know, our God's token, we've got all of these NFTs. They don't have to always stay within uh, the card game. You know, we can build additional experiences that provide additional you know, utility to these, not always directly necessarily even one-to-one where it's you know, the card does something specific in the card game and, you know, uh, and the other, but it's sort of like this economic interoperability where it's like, yep, you can go take some of the cards, potentially like burn them uh, through a mechanism to go generate something in the other card game. Like, but there's a lot of opportunity and unexplored space in you know, how you connect these things together uh, in meaningful ways. And I think that's where you're going to start to see you know, these blockchain franchises go as they gain ground and you know, time passes on to you know, just grow out these ecosystems. Because the other part of this is longevity. Obviously, something that's been in front of my mind for a long time working on games that you're expecting to last decades. Uh, but you know, in the blockchain space, you know, technically as long as the chain exists, you know, NFTs are forever, but you know, forever is a very long time. You know, do I think people will be playing you know, all the games that they're playing today, <laughs> you know, a century from now? Probably not. Like something's gonna change along the way. Uh, but the question is, can you know, the economies, can the NFTs evolve, you know, through the different epochs, and uh, I think they can. And you know how we play that out is going to you know determine long long term whether you know blockchain is something that you know, becomes a backbone foundation of gaming uh, or you know the alternative. Though I, I have a hard time uh, picturing that. I do think once people understand that they can actually you know, have a stake in the, the game's assets that they can be a part of the overall ecosystem. Uh, I do think that they're going to get to the point where they're going to demand that for these lifestyle types of games. I don't think for a moment that all games are going blockchain. There are amazing experiences out there like Unpacking uh, that came out of Australia that there is no need to add any block. Like blockchain does not enhance that in any way, shape or form. Like, <laughs> but when you're in this lifestyle space where people are pouring, you know, potentially, you know, thousands upon thousands of hours into a game, giving people ownership in that is actually very important to me. Putting all that time investment alone, not even beginning to talk about the financial investments that, that some people make in a product. Like when you're talking about that scale, uh, at the end of it, if the player can only walk away, that still feels wrong to me. Um, like when I moved to Australia, uh, we moved very light. And one of the things I did is I did sell off my magic collection that I started in, what, 96. And the fact that I could, and you know, it probably didn't get everything out that I put into it, but I still got something. I actually played for my kids' tuition the first uh, uh, year here in Australia. You know, that, that meant something to me. Uh, if I hadn't been able to do that, it definitely would have left a more bitter taste in my mouth for the experience. Mm -hmm. I can tell you I've got a bunch of legendary Hearthstone cards now gathering dust in the, the databases of, uh, of of Blizzard. So, um, yeah, um, totally get that. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on the tokens you have within Gods Unchained and, and how these interact with, with the ecosystem, with the cards, etc.? Yeah, so we do have a couple of different currencies. Uh, we've got Flux and we've got Stars. And you know, both of those you could consider basically typical sort of in-game currencies uh, that you earn through play. Uh, and then we have gods. So gods is an ERC-20 token. Uh, it is traded you know, 
both within Immutable X and on you know, mainnet as well. And this is probably where we and the space in general are exploring the most on what exactly do you do you know, with these tokens. Um, so there is a, a limited supply of them. For us, it's a, a half a billion that not all of those are unlocked. You know, we've got a schedule of unlocking those over time. But a big part of the token is giving players uh, a more active stake in the overall experience. So using the token to do governance votes, for instance, where we've got some hot button topic, uh, we're not going to make the decision. We're going to put that vote to the players on like how the game is going to go, what direction are we going to take. Yeah, that's something that I've never done, I guess, in my history of gaming. It's allowed us to reward you know, our long-term supporters. So we've done some retrospective drops on people who basically helped make us what we are today by buying packs you know, early on. Yeah, this is, again, a concept that to me was mind-blowing at the time when I joined, where I'm thinking, you know, yay, somebody spent $600 on my game. They, they must love me a lot. Or, you know, for a few people into the thousands of dollars. And then you've got some people, you know, with God's Unchained who spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, you know, basically because they believed in what the game was doing and where it could go. And through these retrospective drops, you're giving people, you know, a chunk of the token. You know, they have ownership over a part of the overall, you know, game's ecosystem. It's a very different concept. And if I was trying to explain it to, like, your everyday gamer, it would be... Imagine you've got your premium currency, so like gems in any number of mobile games, except uh, rather than just being you know, trapped within your account, you know, the, gem, the gems must flow. Uh, you know, they can be traded to other players. You know, ultimately, if you want, you can trade those gems in for hard currency. And it is the place where you know, I think the most unknowns exist uh, in our understanding of them and how to properly apply them. Uh, it's where you know I'm kept up the most at night because, yeah, you know, like with our most you know, recent blessing of the God event, like we put so much time and energy into fighting you know bots because if they can get into a system and use their ability to put in basically endless effort to get to rewards, you're going to get bots. So you know, trying to refine these systems so that players with skill are the ones that we're rewarding, that introduces this really interesting tension of. For us, gods are a key part of the economy. Like I talked about, uh, like people are using them to buy, sell, trade cards in the marketplace. Uh, they're using them to fuse these core cards, you know, onto Immutable X to trade in the marketplace. Like it's very basic so far. There's going to be a lot more coming with it, but it's mm -hmm. providing this sort of uh, economic flow and getting people into it easily. So like a brand new gamer. Like you don't want to have this high bar to start earning the the token and getting into the ecosystem. At the same time, if the bar is not high enough, it's too easy for bots. And there's this really thick tension there between wanting to reward your everyday gamer uh, who may not be the best card game player ever, but bots. And yeah, if I could you know finger snap out of existence a concept from humanity, like right now it would be bots. It's like, come on, guys, uh, you're ruining it for everybody. But you know, the economic incentives are there because they can earn the token and, you know, make a buck. So that's one of the good things about, you know, blockchain gaming, um, but also one of the very difficult parts about it. Did that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's really interesting. And so, if I understand it correctly, what you did 
to counteract the bots was, you know, within your abilities, balance the game in such a way that it was, you know, impossible for a, a dummy bot to, you know, just, just, you know, brute force and, and play and, and gain tokens that way. And someone with, you know, some semblance of skill and understanding of the game would be able to, you know, gain some tokens. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that was the basis for it. And that actually carried us through the first couple of weeks. But like, this just goes to show like human ingenuity mm. in the face of making money is endless. <laughs> Part of it is just uh, what they got to is overwhelming us where they were able to put so many bots into the system using cloud services that the bots are playing bots. As soon as bots are playing bots, you no longer have skill being an element. So what we saw is the bots were able to play bots up until a point um, yeah, as they got you know, up our ranks. And I'm not going to tell the bot people up there like what point we have discovered that they can't quite get past. But then all of a sudden, the bots start encountering, because you know, they're 50-50 against other bots to the point where now they're hitting players. And once they hit players, they they were uh, largely getting wrecked. But it's just, yeah. like, we had leaned essentially on the players. It's like, okay, players are going to protect us to an extent against bots. Yeah, it worked, uh, but only so far. And because... Also, like AI is so much more sophisticated today, even than it was, you know, a decade ago. And while they are not expert, like the bots can perform some pretty basic actions uh, and do not well, but basic, you know, performance where, like, you know, maybe thirty percent win rate, just because you know, games in general. Uh, you know, one of the one of the core concept of competitive games, you know, like Gods Unchained or Hearthstone, is the rate at which the more skilled player wins. So this is actually a problem for uh, another card game called Gwent, in that you know, with Gwent uh, in its original incarnation, the more skilled player won a very, very high percentage of the time. Uh, I remember looking at a statistic where it was about 96% of the time. And that, that sounds like, great, you're rewarding skill. That's good, right? And on some level, yes, the flip side of it is... Uh, that ability to win when you shouldn't necessarily is part of why people game. As an analog, I would say, is in golf. It's like one shot on any round of golf, somebody does something they shouldn't have done. Like they chip it in from you know uh, the edge of the green or they make a really long putt just through random chance. Like it just kind of works out and you're like, that was an elite level shot. You know, the same thing comes through in gaming. Like if you've got with Magic, the percentage of the, the more skilled player winning is lower. Yeah, I don't remember the exact rate. Yeah, let's, we'll say 70% uh, as a number. That 30% of the time where the less skilled player pulls it out, that hope is what drives people to continue sort of in that competitive space. If you strip that hope away because you just know like, yep, this other person is just better than me, I'm going to lose, uh, people will stop playing. Mm-hmm. And now because it is early in the morning, I've lost the thread. What was my original point? <laughs> Um, we're talking about bots and 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 you yeah how are you trying to counter them? Yeah, and with like that skill element, even when the bots are dumber, there is this percentage chance that they're going to win um, just through the random elements in the game. We've tried to tone down our random elements a lot compared to a game like Hearthstone, for instance. But there's still randomness there, just in your direct order draw uh, alone you know, adds a lot in, which gives an opportunity for somebody who has lost their skill to win. And that means bots can still win. And a lot of it is just diving into the metrics of looking at what bots do that humans don't do. Because when you're making this distinction, like if you're going to ban you know, 30,000 people, you want to make sure that they're all bots. And finding that delineator is really quite hard on the whole. 
if I could go back in time, maybe that's what I should have done my major in uh, anti-bot technology. <laughs> where, where do you see that going in, uh, let's say, five years? You know, just like the like how we're gonna you know deal with sophisticated box, particularly as like AI evolves. Yes, it's actually a really interesting question. One of those, which would be, if AI gets to the point that an AI player is indistinguishable from a human player, is it okay for bots to exist in a game then? Because maybe it is. Ultimately, the downside of bots is they do take away from all of the real players because bots aren't adding into the ecosystem and that you know, the goal of bots is to extract value. Uh, so this is one of the, I guess, advantages of having a trap value system is the bots can't extract anything. Uh, by having a value within the product, they can extract it out. So some of the, the ever escalating arms race against you know, the bot makers is finding those ways where you know, we can identify real players and reward them. I think the other thing that is really quite possible is you know, getting more sophisticated uh, KYC into the equation, where you know, I guess an example which I've been running around in my head is like, okay, somebody out, else out there, they're like, we are going to KYC, and once we KYC you with all of your documents, like, yes, you're a real person, you will get a real person NFT or ERC-20, which like, we have defined that this is a real person. At that point, if you want to participate in the ecosystem, like we, we sign up on the real person, you know, ERC-20 initiative, we're like, yep, we will let anyone with an ERC-20 real person you know, token play the game. Then you do get into like, well, I've sold mine to a bot. And then we're like, okay, that's fine. But at least in a way, a real person was involved somewhere in that. Um, but like any system inherently feels attackable. Like, and this is what keeps me up at night sometimes. It's like even something like that, where we knew at one point there was a real person you know, maybe they're not anymore. But I, I do think the only like long-term viable approach as I see the escalation of the technology is something where that KYC of your community is very strong. So you can know with confidence that uh, they're real. All the other analytics, the bots will catch up on. Um, it's just AI is becoming too sophisticated. Well, um, in an effort to help you sleep at night, I can attest that I've, I've, I've seen some projects working on uh, proof of humanity protocols on chain. So uh I hope uh, that that's yeah, I, like I know it's coming. It's part of the reason why I'm not working on it. It's like I'm expecting somebody else will go do it better, and then we can go, uh, you know, take advantage of it. Yeah, totally. Um, man, I've I still have lost so many things that I want to talk about. Um, I'm very curious um, to get your thoughts. Um, recently, we had a discussion around limited number of top tier items within games, and that effect on top level competition. Could you explain a bit around, you know, the top cards within Gods Unchained? What, what's their supply looking like? And, and how do you try to balance that with, you know, a good competitive ecosystem? Yeah, so uh, we do have a few cards like that from the Genesis set. And uh, Genesis, the, the rules of the set were defined before I arrived. And uh, some of it has been trying to live in it. One is that it would be limited. Uh, it would never be reprinted. And it would never go out of sort of frontless competitive play. And... Yeah, there are a few cards in that set. Uh, Pyramid Warden uh, is one of them. Demogorgon is another. Uh, I believe Jason is sort of moving up the list where, yeah, despite our best balance efforts, yeah, these cards do provide more of a competitive advantage uh, in having them than I think uh, we would like. But yeah, our hands are tied to an extent. The good news on that front is part of the overall balance philosophy 
you know, for the project was to to avoid sort of like power creep. You know, we've got yeah you know, the core set which provides the foundation. You know, Genesis uh, does have more power in it than core, but you're looking at like 15% more power you know, across the set. Uh, you have similar for Trial of the Gods and Divine Order, where they're more powerful than the baseline, but not so much so that somebody with a deck uh, full of just core cards uh, and welcome set cards, which are also sort of free to players, uh, it's what they all they start with a full set of welcome set cards, uh, couldn't compete. So this is actually really important to me. Uh, somebody with just core and welcome cards can get all the way into Mythic. At Mythic, their win rate will be lower than somebody who has premium cards in the collection. Absolutely. There is no denying that. But it's not a brick wall. And I think that's actually really important to the design because a lot of games, what you will do is you will brick wall it. Like this is a key part of free-to-play games in general where it's like, yeah, great. You can free-to-play it up to Mythic's you know, rank 12, we'll say like rank 9. But once you start hitting rank 10 players who have real cards, like you're just, it's impossible. And we've balanced the set so it's not impossible. With these outlier cards like Pyramid Ward, uh, Demogorgon, they tilt it more than I would like. People with those cards are not guaranteed to win in any way, shape, or form, but they've got more power. And particularly as we scale to like mainstream numbers, as soon as you have millions of players in the ecosystem, you know, some of these cards have thousands of them in existence. And then we start looking at you know, even just solutions that the communities come up with, because I've talked about this problem with them quite extensively. And one of the concepts that we've got is fusing. So we talked about taking two plane cards, going to meteorite. You know, the other side of it is you know, five meteorites become a shadow, five shadows become a gold, five golds become a diamond. So some of what I've talked about you know, with the community is like, well, you know, one of the other avenues we could do is shattering. So you know, diamond becomes five golds, becomes, you know, five shadows, becomes five meteorites. So you could take, you know, a singular card that exists today uh, and turn that into a, you know, a couple hundred cards potentially. You know, we'll, we'll continue to explore. And this is one of those things that, you know, I talked a, a little bit earlier about governance. I think that making a decision like that and how it would work unilaterally is not necessarily best served to the community. Um, it's something that, Part of the reason we've been talking about that with them for some time, you know, long before it's become an actual problem, because I wouldn't say it's an actual problem, you know, today, uh, because today it's isolated to these few cards. In time, way more of the set is going to be in limited supply. Is you know, to find try and find a, a path that's basically you know, works for everybody. Again, we talk a lot about me staying up, uh, up at night, but that's another one of the things that my brain works on late at night of like, how can we solve this problem? so that yeah, the overall ecosystem continues to flow. Mm -hmm. Devin, what, what are your thoughts here? It's been really interesting to see because the, the, the problem that almost everyone's running into with blockchain games is the economics of it, right? Because you have real-world economic problems like inflation, and you have real-world value sense from scarcity. And we're trying to like balance all these things, um, but with a card game, you're also trying to scale, right? A free-to-play game... Uh, has the advantage of being able to scale off of infinite inflation because of trapped values you're talking about, right? So you can go, okay, that's fine. Generate all you want. I don't care, right? Because it's trapped in your account. You're not going to mess with this economy. And then you've got games that do have real economies. You've got, like, say, something like EVE, right? That's got this one singular economy. They have to try and balance around it. Some of these companies have to hire economists and stuff to try and handle this. And it becomes a really interesting problem. And then you've got also the problem in, in trading card games of how you handle duplicates is a whole other 
ballpark. That's just inherent to the genre, right? Because people buy blind packs and things like that, or just get rewards even. You get dupes of more, because you have different rarities, right? It's just inherent to the design of the way the cards are generally, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't have to be that way, but that's the way that people have generally enjoyed doing it is, is different level of rarities, different level of excitement. And you have, you have to have common cards as part of that, right? So people are getting all these common cards. Those are going to be somewhat inflationary to some extent as well because you're generating a lot of those. So then one of the, the solutions that has been in, uh, you know, in the digital space is fusing cards, right? Or combining cards together to improve them in some way, right? And you, and you have different balancing aspects around that. Like, oh, my common card's better than your common card. And you've got to deal with, with issues of that. But there's also the, the thing Chris touched upon is uh, you remove cards from the economy as well. And that's one of the things Splitterlands does is rather than going up rarity, it goes up levels and sometimes adds abilities and stats, things like that. But they also gate it off of like your summoner level. So they do some different things with how they gate the power levels on that. But the same idea, and I always find it interesting looking at the Splinterlands market where, um, you know, when a set first comes out, like they just released Chaos Legion, and I see the market, like you watch it just start really high and then start crashing down a value and trying to find a st stability really fast as the, as the because they've tried to stage their sales in terms of how frequently people could buy and, and gate that at first to some of the heavy spenders. And then, but they have like a constrained amount of packs, like something Chris was saying that they're trying to get away from doing uh, with the set, you know, limiting in time rather than limiting in quantity. And it's always interesting to see, like, so some of them, like, I'll buy in split lanes, right? I'll be like, yes, this isn't high value right now, but as people combine their cards to uh, increase the level, all of a sudden that's destroying them from the market, right? So now the scarcity actually increases of just this low-level version because of people creating the high-level versions. And then as Chris brought up, like, oh, maybe there's also the ability to do the reverse. So we introduce the ability to, if, like, as a market equilibrium, where we say, well, there needs to be this many in the marketplace, maybe we let people you know, smash them into smaller ones so that like the market can equalize itself because demand goes, hey, we need more of these lower level or these lower rarity ones. And some whale players, you know, go, well, you know, let me provide some of this liquidity in, in the marketplace of lower level cards. And it's really interesting to see how you, you have game balance and you have scarcity and you have economics and all these things like intertwined now in the blockchain. And, uh, you know, as, as I know you've talked about, Nico, this idea of like, the game being more than the game, the meta game and the economy, like starting to influence a game and be part of a game much more than it was. And TCGs have kind of always had that. And so it's, it's why it's a great space to explore and maybe help solve possibly some blockchain economic games just because like we have to deal with that. And one thing I, I'm interested to hear from, from Chris is um, you guys originally were just using Flux, right? To to fuse the cards. So that to, to clarify, because I don't think you mentioned it, uh, fusing cards, just you take a dupe of a card and you fuse the two together using some flux, uh, originally is what it was, just flux. Um, and then you get a now tradable version of the card. You actually mint a card that is no longer like a ethereal version of the card, essentially. Um, and then uh, you may allow minting of higher rarities. I'm not sure if you guys do yet or not. Um, but then the other thing you guys added recently, just before you turned the forge, or the ability to fuse cards back on, was the gods token, right? Because you guys introduced all that stuff. And I'm interested to, to know, so like, Flux itself, my understanding, is an inflationary token because it's just generated through regular play. It's not capped in any way other than uh, a daily amount. And it was it was nicely designed in a way to encourage diversity of collection and play, but it was inflationary in the sense that there wasn't any real limitations to it. And now you've introduced the gods token as, as part of that, and that is a uh, controlled currency. There's a specific amount released. I did notice you guys at least scaled based off the number of players participating, so it's not just a hard set pool, 
Whereas like Splinterlands does uh, a pool as well, but they also like adjust it based off the price of the token, which is an interesting different way to do it. Um, but I'm interested in your thoughts because you were talking about not wanting to limit the growth of the game, right? And the number of players. And free-to-play is all about growing the numbers and using inflationary to their advantage in terms of making this funnel as wide as possible to get everyone in. And you want your funnel to be wide, right? But you also are like, we got to deal with bots stealing God's tokens. They're a constrained currency, but we're also constraining the ability to, to mint these cards now. So minted cards will still be constrained in some way. Uh, I mean, I'm curious how you're you're looking long-term to find that balance between, okay, we do have to constrain this token, but that constrains the cards that can be minted. Um, I mean, are you just gonna have to say, well, maybe some people are gonna have to buy packs to introduce cards into the ecosystem. Maybe we're gonna have to have that shattering system. Like, how are you gonna find that balance really there? Yeah, I, I think you brought up a really good point in that you know, balancing out the economy is hard. And uh, I can say, you know, from the developer perspective, the way that we solve that isn't by trying to balance it ourselves, but in giving the the player base the tools they need to solve it themselves. And that's why systems like you know, fusing, if like there's oversupply, you fuse things together to sort of uh, you know, take things out of circulation. If there's an undersupply, you like a shattering. It's a tool for the community to basically introduce supply in. Uh, again, like other sinks potentially, if there's an oversupply of cards, a system that lets you, you know, burn a, a number of different cards in oversupply to generate you know, another resource, be it gods uh, or new cards from a different card set. Uh, I do believe it's about providing tools uh, so that the, the players ultimately can help you know, manage it themselves uh, rather than us doing it. When it comes to the, the forge and uh, adding gods into the, the equation, one of the key choices there was this inflationary side of things. If Flux alone is used to allow core cards to be minted onto the blockchain. Core cards are also sort of an, an infinite inflationary system. Like there, there's nothing stopping it. Even bots uh, who aren't getting a ton of flux can basically just use their time grind, uh, getting lower value of flux each day to get to the point where they can fuse something. By adding gods into the mix, uh, what we've done is whenever a card is minted, either through purchasing of a pack or through uh, the forge, some gods is basically consumed in that action. And you know, as staking comes online for the gods token, you know, those consumed gods go into the staking pool. Because what we wanted there is for people who are you know, a part of the overall ecosystem to be excited when new cards are minted. Uh, if you're just inflationary, as somebody who has cards, my cards are dropping in value as more enter into the system. Each additional card minted is kind of bad for me. If gods is consumed as a part of that mint, if I'm you know, in the ecosystem, I have cards, I have the, the gods token, each additional card minted to some extent benefits me. It, there's still that counterside that doesn't go away of like, there's more cards. Uh, more cards means in some way the value of each of mine has diminished. Uh, but it's trying to balance out that yet that tension between providing the supply uh, from our end while making sure that players understand that each new card you can help them in some small uh, way, shape, or form. You know, exactly what tools will bubble out of the ecosystem you know, over the next couple of years can't say for sure, but I think that's how we'll get there in not trying to just sort of strong arm in ourselves uh, by getting getting those tools out into the ecosystem. Uh, so that players can solve it for us. And again, it's, it's a concept that it is, I would say, to an extent new, in that you providing players with those sorts of tools isn't something that's sort of status quo uh, in the marketplace right now. Mm -hmm. 
we're um yeah just still so much stuff i'd like to yeah, we're running out of time i'm i yeah i i think um one last question um like we, we can definitely do like a version two or part two of this so uh that, that's that's not a big issue but um what i'd like to know from you um maybe as a as a, as a closing um thought is you know what is next for gods unchained um like uh, what are you working what are you thinking about are you just thinking about the game or are there any significant infrastructure changes you're planning um what can you share about that yeah uh one of the next really big pushes for us is on the scale side of things so yay yeah thank you bots uh at least on that end they did a great job of stress testing the system and we got a lot of really good data out of the blessing of the god event in terms of just <laughs> you know which parts of you know, our, our backend, you know, we're most stressed uh, by the volume of players, but the, it's basically preparing uh, for a larger scale in that you know, part of the goal of this year for us is to start tackling the mainstream. It's not been a place that I've necessarily focused. I haven't tapped any of my connections to streamers or otherwise, uh, because we, we're still you know, figuring out some of the core fundamentals, and we've got some systems to build across, uh, you know, gods and otherwise to sort of finish that off. But yeah, as we get the system scaled and properly automated, yeah, it's it's switching that focus from just the people who are sort of trickling over naturally, you know, from you know, gaming into the blockchain space, and you're actively going out and engaging. And that's a Gonna be a, a bit of a fight because right now, you know, NFT. God, this could be a whole episode, but just like NFTs are not uh, a good word out in mainstream gaming. And you know, part of my mission is to change people's minds on that because I think we have a very different narrative than what they're hearing about NFTs. And you know, it's to not necessarily change the minds of those who just hate NFTs across the board, but to give the people who are on the fence uh, but are open to, to understanding more this narrative that they're missing right now. And I think we can provide that. I agree. I think um, what I take away from this episode and, and for what Devin and Chris shared is that I feel trading card games are perfect for blockchain or blockchain is perfect uh, for trading card games. Um, we've had a lot of discussions with people saying like, you know, blockchain isn't needed for games. You can do everything without a blockchain as well. And I think in this case, uh, Chris, you made a, a bunch of good points on, or reasons at least why um, that's not really the case and why blockchain is really, really valuable in this specific case. Um, to end this up, I, I didn't, I didn't tell you guys this, but, um, I hope we can, we can find something. I always like to end, or at least include in our, uh, episodes, a bold prediction. And so in this case, um, I'm curious to have your bold predictions about, um, trading card games on the blockchain. Um, I'll, I'll let Devin go first. Maybe he has, you know, already like, he's a bold guy. I'm, I'm sure he can come up with something and then Chris, you have a bit more time to think about one. So Devin, please. Yeah, I mean, I think at some point, some of the bigger players in the trading card game space, or even some that are introducing a physical product, are going to have to start looking at what blockchain can provide for them. Just because if the, the sort of hype, even though, yeah, there's some backlash as well, but if, if the hype continues, I think some of the big players are going to have to start to look at, like, is this something we want to do? Like, I know there was, for example, pushback originally against doing digital stuff because of uh, for, from Hasbro's side, right? Because they had struggled, uh, you know, to try and find their niche in the digital space for quite a while. 
Um, and, and there's always that back and forth. Like, you know, like I, I deal with a lot of physical players who are just like, I, I refuse to play digitally. I want to be in front of people. I want to be with people. But then all of a sudden, uh, you know, Magic the Gathering Arena, as I'm sure Chris knows, started eating the physical products lunch, right? It started taking Marketplace away and then Hasbro starts to go, well, maybe there is something here. And I think if Chris is successful uh, on the, you know, the immutable side, it will continue to make them have to look at this space and think about, is there a fit here for us? Should we uh, release a uh, experimental product? And it's not like they don't release experimental products occasionally um, that they try and do. And I think Hasbro uh, is maybe a good candidate to try and do something like that because they are they have a lot of IP that they're willing to experiment with. So for example, they did a Transformers card game a little while ago. They, they didn't do the, a great job of releasing it and they kind of Fortunately, shot themselves in both their feet, I think. But they, they are willing to experiment a little bit. I think whether it be them, whether it be like something like Yu-Gi-Oh, who's done a lot of different ideas as well, someone's going to have to take a look at this space and go, well, we either release a new IP in this space or we take one of our existing IPs and, and experiment in it. Even if we just do a light game, like the way that Yu-Gi-Oh did Duel Links as a, as a lighter version of the game to kind of just dip their toe in the waters. And I expect, maybe it won't happen this year. Maybe it's within the next couple of years. But assuming that, this market fit continues to be there for TCGs and blockchains. Um, I think there's no reason to not expect at least one of them to really want to take a bite out of this apple. I like it. Chris? Yeah, so if I were going to go with sort of bold prediction land. Yes, please. Uh, I can't tell you exactly the time frame, but my belief is that over the next 10 years, uh, Particularly when it comes to lifestyle games, players will demand ownership of their assets. Um, be it like right to repair or any sort of any of these other sort of concepts that just people get to the point where like, yeah, the status quo just doesn't work for me. Um, particularly in the lifestyle gaming space, uh, I mm. think people are going to demand that yeah, this new paradigm where if I'm buying all my skins or whatever it is, like they're mine. I can sell them, I can buy them, you know, trade them. Uh, I think that we're going to get to that. I, I think there's enough backlash, even just over like the randomness mechanics that they're using today, that it's kind of an inevitability. Um, I would say it's a, a little bit of sort of my secret mission too, and like I, I would love to force wizards uh, to go down this path for their own uh, card games. If I can make one more though, it's that most people are going to screw it up for a time. So I think the the, the chance that the backlash continues. Uh, uh, against the space initially is very strong because I don't think people are are looking at blockchain like at that level in terms of what it can do for players. They're looking at it from the like, how, how can I monetize even better than free to play? Or how can I get them to spend, you know, thousands of dollars on this one NFT inside a larger sort of trapped value system? I expect that that's where the minds will exist for a time because what they're going to see is they're like, yeah, I want a piece of this, you know, quarter million you know, image, you know, pie. So they're going to aim towards that to start. But with time, again, particularly for lifestyle games, like it's just going to be the price of entry because people aren't going to come to your lifestyle game and invest their life into it unless they can retain you know, a piece of that. Mm -hmm. Great. Very, very good predictions. Thanks, guys. All right. This, I think, runs up the episode quite nicely. Uh, Devin, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. This was great. And uh, listener, thank you for listening. If you made it until here, congrats. I really hope you enjoyed. If you did, feel free to let us know. And if you want to join the conversation, you can you can find us uh, on Discord and, and find all that stuff on navig.co. And with that, the Metacost is out and we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.